Welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases, a podcast discussing real-world cases handled by Justin Hill and the Hill Law Firm. For confidentiality reasons, names and amounts of any settlements have been removed. However, the facts are real, and these are the cases we handle on a day-to-day basis. All right, welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases. Uh, Bill Marler just had to listen to my overly dramatic intro <laughs> music, but you know we're learning as we go. We were just talking. I said it's crazy you don't have a podcast, and you said you don't have time. And COVID sort of allowed me this free time to do something I'd been wanting to do for a while. Um, Bill Marler is—I mean, I don't even think it's arguable—the foremost food um, injury lawyer in America, which has sort of created you to be one of the foremost food safety experts probably around the world. So what I want to talk to you about is food cases, how you got into it, and you've sent me a little bit of background information. You know, I'm in San Antonio. Migrant farm worker is something that's in the past history of so many people in this city and lawyers I know and friends of mine. Talk to me about how you had some time working as a migrant farm worker. (laughs) Yeah, um, when I was uh, 16, uh, it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school, uh, my parents were both teachers uh, and good, really good people. And um, I had decided that, you know, I didn't want to hang around uh, the house and hang around the little town I was living in for the summer. And I wanted to go seek adventure. And a friend of a friend of a friend said, oh man, you could work in the apple orchards and pear orchards of Eastern Washington and make a fortune. I was like, gosh, that sounds like a great idea. So I told my mom and dad, I wouldn't do this. And they're like, no, no, you're not. You're going to get a job here. And then they're like, no, 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 I think I'm going to do it. No, 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 you're not going to do it. So one Saturday when they're, you know, to the grocery store, I packed a duffel bag, you know, uh, and uh, hiked down to the road. And uh, uh, you could hitchhike back then. And, uh, you know, about eight hours later, I wound up in a little town on the Columbia River, uh, that's, uh, you know, known for raising, uh, cherries, apples. And I worked that whole summer from, uh, Eastern Washington to Eastern Oregon, uh, to, uh, Eastern side of uh, British Columbia, which is called, it's essentially the Okanagan Valley. And it's where, um, you know, all Washington fruits and vegetables, uh, were raised now with global warming, it's the hot spot for, uh, wine. Uh, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, now, now Oregon Pinots and, uh, uh, Washington cabs are, you know, right up there because, uh, you know, we've, uh, you know, we warmed up the planet enough that, you know, us up here in the Pacific Northwest can grow good wine. So yeah, it was a really interesting, I mean, it was an interesting experience. And I think, I think the thing that I took away from it was, you know, uh, uh, just how hard, those people work. And back then, you know, this is 1970s. Um, back then it was, it was much more, um, uh, you know, it was white and black, Hispanic, but a lot of poor whites. Okay. And, you know, it was, so it was a different demographic than really kind of what you see now. Although like in slaughter facilities across the Midwest, a lot of the people in the slaughter facilities are Eastern European. So, um, you know, the, the immigrants, I learned a lot about immigrants, you know? So when you were doing it, that was, is, was that not sort of the Hispanic migratory farm workers? Would they not get up that high? You know, it was very few. Um, I mean, it was not, uh, there were a handful, but it was primarily, uh, nowadays it's just, you know, that's, that is what it is. And, you know, we're right now, Washington, you know, on the COVID thing, uh, you know, Washington as a state has done pretty well considering we were like the first state that blew up. Yeah. Um, but we're doing really well in Western Washington. In Eastern Washington, where food production is, um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, some of the small towns uh, that have uh, food production facilities blow up with COVID problems. And so, um, and whether, you know, exactly 
you know, the reasons for that? Is it, you know, people coming to Washington or is it just the working conditions? It's probably a combination of all those things. Yeah. Uh, Bill, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, are lawyers, um, young lawyers, especially I seem to, to hear a lot from. How did you get into the law? We're going to talk about food cases and spend that time. But at some point we all decide, I decided due to a family trauma that we had or a family tragedy that I wanted to be a guy suing big corporations. That interested right. me and it, 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 I felt passionate about it. How did you get into the law? So what, when I went to college, um, I uh, wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. Um, but when I was uh, uh, the end of my freshman year uh, at uh, Washington State University, uh, the Cougars in Pullman, Washington, uh, I stayed that summer uh, at, to work on a farm, primarily because I had an expertise in that now. And uh, I stayed that summer and uh, got connected with some, the guy that was the student body president. And we decided it'd be a kind of a fun thing to do to run some students for the Pullman City Council. <laughs> this is in 1977. So I was just turned 19 years old. And, um, you know, we had just, <laughs> 18 year olds had just gotten the right to vote just a few years earlier. So um, I, got serious about it. I canvassed the entire town and I won by 51 votes. And for a while, I was the youngest person elected in the United States uh, to a, you know, any kind of public office and was the first student uh, ever elected to the Pullman City Council. It was a four-year term. And I think that really started to kind of gel my interest in becoming a lawyer. Um, and, you know, I had visions of, you know, being a lawyer and, you know, being the youngest president. And, uh, you know, that didn't quite turn out exactly the way I planned, but, you know, no harm, no foul, things turned out just fine. So, so did you go sort of the, I mean, other than being elected to city council, kind of the normal path of college straight into law school? Yeah, straight. Well, I, I spent a, a year after law school, uh, working as a paralegal, okay. um, which is a, I'm constantly glad I did that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so I worked as a paralegal and then, uh, you know, went to law school, uh, you know, worked actually while I was going to school. Um, so I was lucky to not come out with a lot of debt um, and went to work for the big law firm in Seattle at the time it was called Bogle and Gates had 300 lawyers. And I wound up doing, um, asbestos defense cases right okay. out of the box. And after about a year of doing depositions of mesothelioma uh, victims and their, their spouses, I decided that, you know, I couldn't do that. And so I went to work for a small plaintiff's firm. For, I was there for about, about a year. And then it was a husband and wife team, really good cases and, you know, high, high, uh, and uh, PI cases. I learned a ton, but they got divorced and <laughs> the firm blew up. So I was without a job. So I wound up getting um, a job at a small, not small, 50 lawyer sort of insurance defense sort of litigation firm. Uh, it was a solid job. I was married. I had a, you know, my we just had a baby. And uh, so I was kind of you know, wanting to make sure I had a stable sort of situation. Um, but the thing I did there, um, what, and this is, I think, you know, for your young lawyers listening, is, is that sort of I never just decided to just like take the cases that I got. I tried to always think about doing like my own thing and try to build my practice. Yeah. And, the fact that I had plaintiff's experience, I went to some of the lawyers and, you know, if we didn't have a conflict, I said, you know, there's no reason why I can't take that car case. You know, uh, I, one time um, I met some, uh, uh, a cabbie, I was going somewhere and the cab, cab you guys were trying to create a different union. So I went to their, they asked me to come to their meeting and help them organize. So I, went to their meeting and helped them organize. And uh, from that, one of the guy's sister's kid had been, uh, you know, murdered by a, an escaped um, 
you know, a convict, a, a pedophile, and and I sued the state of Washington, and uh, that was sort of my first big plaintiff's case. Caused a lot of grief in the law firm because they, you know, it was high, very high profile. And how far along? Shortly, how old were you then as a lawyer? What three years out of law school? Okay, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but you know, I had a, I had a, you know, uh, the great thing about being overconfident, um, you, you know, sometimes you don't know how stupid you are. Um, but you know, I, I had a, I think primarily from being on the city council, I had a, uh, I felt like I was, you know, well qualified when I probably <laughs> not. Um, but uh, and then as that case was sort of perking the Jack in the box E. coli outbreak hit state of Washington. And it was uh, January uh, 19th, uh, 1993. And, you know, I remember that day, you know, I lived on, I lived on an Island. I still live on that same Island across from Seattle. And I took the ferry in every day and it was a rainy day. I was reading the morning newspaper, sitting on the ferry. And it was like, there's a something going on at a Jack in the Box, E. coli. What the? Yeah. I got to the office that day, and you know, there no lawsuits had been filed. And I get a call from a former client of mine, who I had helped in a workers' comp case, and um, and this it had been a couple of years earlier. And she called me and said, you know. I don't know if you'd be interested, but I have a friend whose kid's in the hospital with this E. coli thing. So I hopped in a taxi of one of my buddies from the taxi service <laughs> and drove down to Tacoma, which is about 30 miles away, and signed these people up. And then... Uh, so your snapshot at the time, you had done no products work. I had done... Well, yeah, not any Asbestos defense, but you were Asbestos the low man defense. on the totem pole. I knew, I knew about strict liability. And I presumed that food was a product. So strict liability applied. Had but, people, uh, had people done any food poisoning no, cases at that point? No, not, not in them. And, and at the time, <clears throat> the time we didn't really know how big this thing was. Um, and so I came back and I drafted a complaint and <clears throat> I probably shouldn't tell you this story because if it comes back, my wife will get mad at me, but <laughs> go on. <laughs> yeah, go on, <laughs> go on, Father Confessor. Uh, when I was in Pullman, Washington, uh, a woman I dated was, uh, uh, they have the uh, Edward R. Murrow communications program. Uh, it's a well-respected sure. communication. Most, most, you'll find a Washington State University grad in most newsrooms across America. Okay. That's a real it's kind of like Missouri. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah, for, for writing. Yeah, for, for writing. Journalism, yeah. journalism. Anyway, at the time, I, I had this girlfriend, pretty serious. And anyway, she dumped me for the guy who wound up being the quarterback for the football team. Well. And, you know, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, so, so years later, uh, here I am, young lawyer with, uh, you know, with this case, and she is the uh, anchor for the local TV station. So I call her up and I said, hey, you know, it's Bill. Oh, Bill, how you doing? Great, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, you know, I think you owe me one. <laughs> so, yeah. so anyway, I wound up being on TV that night when I filed the lawsuit and sort of became the face of Jack the Box of trying to explain to the public what was going on. And you were a three-year lawyer. I was three, uh, three and a half year. Yeah. So I, yes, October. Yeah. So three, three and a half years. And, um, didn't know enough to know what you didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. But I knew more, I knew more than anybody else. I mean, you were playing the media. You took a case nobody had done before and Hey, take a swing. Yeah. So I, I, I also had gone to the university of Washington medical school library and walked in and said, <laughs> this is before computers. This, this is crazy. This is before the internet. And um, we didn't have email. And so, um, so I walk in and was like, you know, I don't even know where to look for anything about E. coli. So I just walked up to the, you know, the librarian and I said, hey, 
you guys have anything about E. coli? So I just read all I could. So at least I knew how to say it yeah. and I knew what the problem was. And so was this yeah, before I, or after that weird time in the nineties when like the book outbreak or the movie outbreak came out and everybody was scared of getting Ebola. Was that sort of before or after that time? Cause oh, there was yeah, that, yeah, this was before. Okay. Cause so, there was that weird time in the nineties when everybody was scared of like a pandemic. Ebola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course now, we yeah. watch those movies and they look very similar. Yeah, to no, that's doing. right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I went from having one case to 10 cases to 30 cases and all individually filed. Yes. Okay. And um, then um, the, a real interesting thing happened. There were, a, there are a lot of good plaintiff's lawyers in, you know, the Northwest um, you know, people who, you know, are on, you know, national trial college and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, here I am a third year lawyer from a mid-sized insurance defense firm, primarily with all these cases and the plaintiff's bar was pretty pissed. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, so I went to a meeting with them and they were pretty unhappy, um, and essentially, I kind of sort of smoothed it over by essentially saying, hey, look, I will do all the work. I will prove to you that I know what I'm doing and I can, I can help us all. And so really from that point on, I uh, sort of took control of the case. I offered to do everything. And did the other plaintiff's lawyers have cases? Is that why they oh, were? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. They all had cases. You okay. know, they had one here, one there, but I, and then pretty soon people were like going, well, you know, you've got 30 cases here. You take this one. Yeah. And so I mean, did people think they were viable or were they taking a swing because you were? Um, I mean, you see that in torts, you see it where everybody's yeah, like, that's crap, yeah. but that guy's going to swing. So I might as well ride along. So, so yeah. So, I think at the time, nobody knew quite what was going on. Okay. But. And what know, was the theory? It was a theory was at the time uh, that Jack in the Box had not cooked the hamburgers to a sufficient temperature to kill E. coli. Okay. And so it was almost a negligence was, case then at that point, right? Yeah. And then, and then as we got to know more, you know, it was became essentially as we started, I started thinking about it as the hamburger was the product and the yeah. defect was the E. coli and the defect was not cooking it properly. Kind of like a manufacturing you know, defect, manufacturing defect. Huh. And so, so that became sort of the overarching theory. And then it became really clear that there were some, you know, there you know, four kids died and there were some, you know, there were 50 children who had developed acute kidney failure. There was one girl who I wound up being retained by their family, you know, probably six months into the outbreak. She was hospitalized for over six months. Um, and they had every day, you're too young to remember this, but back during the, the uh, Iran hostage crisis in the seventies, it was every night there was like day 52 of the hostage crisis. Yeah. Every night on TV was day 52 of Brianne's. Is that home. right? Oh, yeah. And it was like just, you know, drumbeat of that. But, you know, circling back to the relationships with lawyers is that um, kind of like projects in college, if you offer to do stuff and don't, be like, say, Hey, you know, I get your fee or, you know, you're just right. doing it for the right reasons. If you offer to do stuff, it's amazing how many people will let you do it. Yeah. And the thing that came out of, you know, after two years of litigation and, you know, um, uh, and me transferring law firms, uh, kind of in the middle of that, uh, I decided that, uh, about, about a year into it, I went to the partners of the firm I was in. And by then I had about a hundred cases wow. and it was pretty clear that by then I, fig I was figuring out and I'd been hired by this family of this child and a couple of people who lost children. It's pretty clear that this was going to be a big deal. And 
uh, I just said, hey, look, you know, make me the 23rd partner and I'll just, you know, get my 123rd share of whatever. And yeah. they're like, no, no. We have I said to be no. Seven years out of law school. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I went to actually went to the, the senior partner of the firm, the and wonderful guy. Uh, he was, you know, about a year after I left, he, he passed away. Um, and the family asked me to speak at their, his funeral, which pissed everybody off for the firm. But nonetheless, uh, I went to him and said, hey, Pinkney, his name was Pinkney Rohrbeck. I went, Pinkney, what, what should I do? And he said, he goes, Bill, he goes, you got to do the right thing for your client and everything else will be okay. <laughs> so that night I wrote a note to the managing partner, said I'm leaving the firm and uh, I joined another firm, um, wrote a letter to all my clients saying, you have a choice. You can stay with the firm. You can come with me. You're complete choice and uh all but one client came with me wow and so i mean today that would lead to a ton of fee fight lawsuits were y'all cool it no it no 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 it wasn't cool at all (laughs) um they were they were mad they threatened to sue me i said hey let's do mediation went to mediation and i agreed to give them half of my fee at the end of the case whatever the fee was i give them half and they're like awesome (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and so, um, you know, I tried to take a sort of big deal and through my first mediation, we settled $25 million worth of cases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I walked a check over to them for 2.5 million bucks. Did you have any idea what the value was in these cases? No, they didn't either. So I read the book poisoned. So yeah. That, that's sort of the seminal book that about the story. Yeah, yeah, about that litigation. And they didn't, I mean, Jack in the Box didn't take you seriously at all at first, right? Mm-mm. But the great thing is, you know, the great thing about discovery is it's such a fun tool. <laughs> uh, and I remember, I remember um, kind of the breaking point, I don't know if it's in the book, but I, in the breaking point of that, that litigation was um, I realized that there was a shareholder litigation that was kind of alongside of us. It was all the shareholders of Jack in the Box had sued yeah. Jack in the Box for essentially causing this outbreak yeah. and making their stock price go down. And I knew that the litigation was going on and they had a protective order, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I called up the lawyer and I said, hey, could you come over and look at some of my documents? And so he was looking at the documents that I'd called in and he goes, well, I can't tell you what other documents I have, but I have other documents that you probably, they're, they're copies of your documents, but with handwriting on them. So I, I moved to intervene in the shareholders litigation. And when the court, uh, in fact, I argued it. I argued that motion. The guy on the other side of it was Bruce Clark, who's now my partner. Okay. He represented Jack in the Box. And uh, so we, we, you know, the court ruled in my favor and I was able to get access to all those documents. And once I got that, it, everything sort of became clear that Jack in the Box knew about the cooking temperatures, made a conscious decision to ignore it because it interfered with their two minute turnaround cook time. Yeah. And that, that timing was more important than the temperature. Wow. (laughs) And so after that, it was just like the cases just settled. How many cases did you end up having in that? Um, just a little over a hundred of types and sizes, uh, some death, unfortunately some death cases, kids with, uh, acute kidney failure. I mean, Wikipedia said one of them settled for 15.9. Is that, is that, accurate. Yep. Okay. So there, there were big settlements in those cases. So I, I heard of your name the first time when I was a baby lawyer at a firm that my first job, the firm was known for Ford rollover and Ford cases. A guy named Michael Mm -hmm. Watts was a big uh, auto products guy. And a a lawyer I got to know said he tried to call with a spinach case back in the day and said that they said, well, we don't do that kind of stuff. And somebody referred him to you and 
the number he said that case settled for, I remember thinking, how on earth does a food poisoning case? But the girl <laughs> had HUS. They had the bag of spinach. They had frozen. It got tested. I mean, it was a very clean, cut and dry case. Um, I at, think I actually, I think I know that case. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, it was not, was not a, it was, she was a college student. That's right. Yeah. 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 And she, a college student and she actually, she and her husband actually live in Austin. So, so maybe John O'Quinn's firm sent it to you because my yeah. buddy sent it to O'Quinn and O'Quinn sent it to you. Well, they, yeah, they kept their, their mitts on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, yeah. I, I, uh, uh, yeah, we worked that out. In fact, I remember it was one, actually they, it was one of my, the last of the group of spinach cases and we mediated it in Wisconsin uh-huh. in the middle of the fricking winter and you know and at the fister hotel if you've ever been to i'm not it's a oh, it's a great so it's a little classic old hotel with the you know it's neat it's a neat place but so yeah, we mediated that and settled it yeah and that guy it's funny he's he is a minimum limits car wreck defense lawyer and that case paid for his kids college and all that kind of stuff. It's just, he stumbled into that case and knew the right place to send it and got a great result for the client. Other than Jack in the box, you've been involved in spinach, peanut butter. What are some of the other, has any other food outbreak case rivaled Jack in the box and sort of. um, Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's funny because every time I think I, every once in a while I go, Oh, this is going to be the biggest case I've had, or this is going to be, but, um, you know, there have been, uh, I've been involved in, you know, every single course <laughs> case that has occurred in the United States, you know, major and minor, um, you know, and one of the most tragic cases I was involved in was there was a 2011 uh, outbreak of listeria, which is a really nasty pathogen linked to cantaloupe. It uh, killed 33 people in the United States. Wow. I represented 30 of those families. Jeez. And, uh, it was a, it, it was a, uh, it was a clear case of liability. The problem was, is that there were lots of problems with respect to insurance coverage. And so we wound up, uh, working our way from the grower to the shipper huh. all the way, all the way to Walmart and Kroger bankrupting everybody below, uh, the retailers and then, then putting the arm on, you know, Walmart and Kroger. So Bill, talk to me about that. Because I remember when those Listeria cases came in, I remember reading about Listeria and I thought there's a 30 day incubation period. I mean, how do you, if I got sick with Listeria tomorrow, I'm not going to remember what I ate 30 days ago. If I had cantaloupe, maybe, maybe not. So there's a, there's a great paper uh, that I wrote. Look, I don't know. It's probably been 15 years ago. It really hasn't, hasn't changed. It's it's a, a little white paper I've got on BillMarler.com. Uh, it's called Separating the Wheat from the Chaff. Okay. It's kind okay. of a how-to of how to do a food case. Both you can you, know, you can read it backwards and defend it, or you can read it forward. Sure. Um, but incub- foodborne illness cases are unique because each of these pathogens have incubation periods that can vary widely from you know a day or 24 hours to weeks. Um, listeria can be up to 70 days after <laughs> ingestion. Um, you know, most cases it's within a week or two of ingestion because usually it impacts somebody with a pregnant woman or someone with immune compromise. So it's not quite as difficult to sort of sometimes pull all that together. Okay. But, you know, there's always a challenge. Anytime you have a small outbreak where it's, you know, one person or two people, it's really hard to put those together sometimes. And it's those time and sometimes a lot of money, you know, chasing a rabbit that we can't catch. And you, and, you have your own epidemiologist in house. Yeah. What is the role of an epidemiologist for you in working up these cases? Yeah. So our office runs essentially like a public health organization that has sort of a prosecutor attached to okay. it. And so when we intake cases, we're doing the same thing that health departments are doing, especially like during COVID, where health departments are not investigating these yeah. cases. We're doing those investigations ourselves. So we're interviewing people. We're getting receipts. We're, you know, doing food histories. We're doing all of those sorts of things, trying to figure out, 
you know, whether or not we can link a person's illness to a particular product. And that's what our epidemiologist does. And um, that's what epidemiologists do, foodborne epidemiologists do all over the country. Right now, they tend to be more focused on COVID for understandable reasons. But, but from yeah. your law firm standpoint, that's almost really vetting whether it's a case. Once it's actually in litigation, does the epidemiologist have much of a role anymore? Um, not our in-house one, okay. uh, but sometimes we then have to, you know, not to say that she's not qualified as an expert, but you know, obviously we have to get an outside expert to sort of look at this. In fact, I was just working on a, uh, an expert report today on a case I've got, a you know, salmonella case I've got in Washington, D.C., and getting an expert to, in a sense, opine what our epidemiologist has already told me. Okay. So, so we, you know, you have to go through those hoops. It's your own in-house consulting expert. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we have a nurse, full-time nurse who, you know, helps us, who's been, who's been with me for gee, 20 years. Um, you know, she knows more about foodborne illnesses, you know, health. She knows more than I do. Um, but yeah, we've been involved and right now. I, I think you and I've talked about this. I'm involved with a listeria case in South Africa right now where um, I'm representing or assisting and, and funding and uh, working on a case involving 1000 people uh, who got sick and 200 who died from eating a product called Poloni, which is a kind of a nasty form of bologna that's eaten by, it's kind of like spam. It's eaten by okay. rich and white and black it's you know it's it's a it's a ubiquitous you know south african product like spam is here in the united states is there a legal system that allows for recovery over there yes it, it this is really fascinating about five six years ago um uh they essentially adopted uh, a u.s version of a of a uh, consumer protection act kind of claim <laughs> And um, a, I think it was about a year after it had been instituted, I had been asked to come to South Africa to speak at a food safety conference. So I'd never been to South Africa. So I flew down there and got to go on a, a, a safari too, which is cool. a blast. And, uh, uh, but anyway, I, you know, kind of explained to them how we do things here in the US and there was a lawyer there who represented companies uh, who were they're trying to figure out what's this Consumer Protection Act going to mean. So he and I kept in touch over the last five years. And when I saw this listeria outbreak uh, hit the public, the one that I'm working on now, sort of hit the public in uh, about oh, probably October, November of 2017. I called him and I said, man, you guys got like 150 people sick. It's got to be some kind of product like cheese or deli meat. And he's like, no, it's the water and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know, man. So that, so March of 2018, um, I had been invited to come to South Africa to speak at a food safety conference again. And I was like, oh man, that's a, to one full day, 24 hour flight. It's a long time to get there. It's Seattle to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Oof. Johannesburg. It's a yeah. long yeah. Or you can go Seattle to Atlanta, Atlanta to Johannesburg, which is 16 hours one way. Anyway, so I said, oh, you know, I think I'm going to do it by video and blah, blah, blah. So we we're talking about it. That Monday, the, the uh, conference was on Wednesday. That Monday, the health department announced in, in South Africa that this outbreak was now, you know, 800 people and it had been linked to Tiger Brands Poloni, which is the largest <laughs> meat supplier in the, in the, in, in Africa. I mean, Poloni just sounds gross. It's just terrible. Yeah, Google it later. <laughs> anyway, so it was, this was six o'clock in the morning on a Monday and I was sitting there going, you know, I wonder if I could get to South Africa by Wednesday. <laughs> so I called my travel agent again, Mark, I need to get to South Africa by Wednesday. He goes, well, we could, you know, rent a jet. I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> you got to get me there commercially. And, and he's like, he's okay. Well, we make, make some calls. Well, I happened to all at Monday, that Monday morning, I was in Arizona and uh, 
So I flew home, had my wife meet me at the airport <laughs> with a, a suit and you know some other clothes. And I got on a plane from Seattle to Amsterdam that day. I made it to South Africa Wednesday morning, an hour and a half before my speech. I took a shower <laughs> shave, gave my speech, and it was nuts. It was like reliving Jack in the Box. Huh. People, because it was like, oh my God, how could this ever happen? Oh, what? no, geez, you know, it's terrible. And here I was like, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. And so then our office in Seattle, I was on TV that night and on the radio because people didn't have anybody to talk to. Yeah. We started getting phone calls in Seattle from South Africans saying, my wife died, Jeez. my child died, I need help. And so my office is calling me and like, what are you doing? <laughs> and so I found a law firm in South Africa that had um, been in a fight with the uh, uh, diamond mines over silicosis injuries. Yeah. And uh, so I contacted them and said, hey, would you guys like to work on this case? And they're like, sure. <laughs> So we filed a class action and we now, and the court has uh, appointed us uh, as class counsel for all 1,000 victims. Are there so, damages caps there? Or? Nope, they're just, uh, nope, it's all, it's a it's the wild west. But it's a court yeah. that decides, right? Not a jury? It's a judge. It's one judge. Um, you know, there's precedents that have been set on values and, um, but more importantly, it's about, you know, figuring out what happened and yeah. why, and how you can prevent this from happening. Um, I mean, this is a terrible tragedy for, you know, I mean, this, I, uh, I could go on, but I, I went to, I was staying uh, at a, Johannesburg is like, like, you know, looks like it for the most part, most parts of the town, like a, any, major European or American city. Okay. Uh, but surrounding it is, uh, you know, the township of Soweto. Um, and uh, I had one of the clients was a, a young mom whose child had been born prematurely and had some problems. And um, I just wanted to go meet him. And uh, so I went to the hotel as uh, concierge and I said, Hey, I, I, I'd like to met a car and go out so I can drive out to sweat. And they're like, Oh no, 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 Mr. Marler, you're not going to do that. And they, uh, uh, so they got me a, uh, a, a tour guide, yeah. which were two big 300 pound dudes with, uh, <laughs> you know, arms as big as my thighs and, uh, with guns. And, uh, we drove out to sweat in a, an up armored Toyota land cruiser. And I went out there and it just, wonderful people and, and, um, you know, um, poor, but you know, good people shouldn't have, should, this should not have happened yeah. to them. So it's been a real, you know, I don't know what's going to happen financially. You know, my goal here is to, you know, any getting anything for these people would be important. Yeah. But, you know, making sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again is, you know, almost as important. Um, you're very humble about all these things that you've done. So I want to talk to you about your advocacy, but before I want to just be a kind of a nerd, what are, what are sort of the three biggest in terms of total, total value of all the cases, food poisoning or food outbreak cases you've worked on? Well, you know, like most of these cases are confidential, you know, on settlements of the settlements, but, um, you know, uh, I've settled E. coli cases from 5,000 to 30 million per individual. And, you know, and unfortunately, those, you know, and just like any other damages, yeah. there's a relationship between how bad off someone is sure. uh, to, you know, how much they, you know, can get. Um, what about in total value? Was spinach the biggest? Yeah, probably, probably. I mean, we represented 105 of the people. Okay. Most of the really injured people. So um, you know, we used up all their insurance money. Um, 
but you know, I'm, I'm right now I'm working on a case <clears throat> probably from a damages point of view, um, probably the most severely injured victim of a foodborne illness case that survived. It's a, a two-year-old boy who uh, ate uh, E. coli contaminated romaine lettuce, um, suffered a, a, a brain bleed. Uh, he can't walk, talk, feed himself. Uh, and he's also, you know, uh, going to lose his kidneys. Um, you know, the issue, I mean, from a damages point of view, it's just horrific. There's obviously going to be issues about, you know, life expectancy. Is a brain bleed a known complication with E. coli? Yeah. I mean, wow. he, he's, yeah, it, it, it happens. Uh, a lot of times <clears throat> what happens in E. coli is, is that um, the, uh, uh, the toxin gets into the blood system and splits the red blood cells. And so it doesn't carry adequate oxygen. So a lot of times you have like these micro thrombi, but this kid, you know, these, these schistocytes, these little pieces of uh, red blood cells can clog up in your, in your capillaries and yeah. stuff. What happened here is it, it, you know, a big, he stroked. And okay. so you look at his MRI now, um, you know, a year after this thing, it's, 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 it's amazing. He's well, he just, he's amazing. He's functioning at so all. With, with what's going on with COVID and everything, I think we're all a lot more knowledgeable as a society about chicken farms and pig farms and all that type of stuff. What do you see anything changing in the food industry just due to a food safety perspective? Do you personally think I'm never eating pork again? Or, you know, what, um, what do you see changing so, or coming about? So setting aside COVID for a second, there's no, <clears throat> there's, there's no, no evidence whatsoever uh, that that it's foodborne. Sure. Uh, uh, although the, the Chinese uh, uh, have, have just recently had a spike in COVID cases in Beijing, <clears throat> and they're trying to blame it on Norwegian frozen salmon. <laughs> I didn't anyway, see that. Hey, you know, it's... Hey, Everyone tries to blame everybody for whatever, but anyway. But COVID um, made everybody talk about MERS and SARS a lot more. So I think people yeah, just started yeah. so, knowing more about it. So the answer to your question is um, right now, because everyone's focused on uh, COVID, we really don't know what's going on behind the scenes with respect to foodborne illnesses. It's not, an, it's not an issue of competency from the public health department, but it's just that they're obviously focused on other things, yeah. understandable. So that's one thing that's going on is the surveillance of those diseases are not happening. So we've actually seen sort of a, a downturn in call, calls and intakes of, of confirmed cases. We get a lot of phone calls from people who are, you know, I've got this problem, uh, what do I do? And I don't want to go to the doctor because of COVID. So, you know, the way these outbreaks get figured out is somebody goes to the doctor and gets a stool culture. That's what prompts the investigation. So if people aren't going, people aren't being counted. Yeah. The other thing too is with restaurants shut down, um, you know, people are eating at home. Um, and so you're not having uh, outbreaks at a restaurant setting where there'll be so many of them that you'll notice. So it's kind of unclear to me uh, what this whole COVID thing's gonna do, except I think that we'll see less litigation that stems from this period of time because I think there'll be less illnesses that will be actually linked to a particular thing. What about just industry-wide? Yeah, it makes sense. Industry-wide, do you see any changes in the way we're going about making food or you know, growing animals that you think is gonna make food safer or less safe as we move forward? That's a great question. That's a good opportunity. I hadn't said something, but the, um, you know, from about 1993 to about 2002, about 95% of the revenue of my law firm was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Oh, wow. And so we were really a one shop kind of place. Um, you know, we had a random salmonella case and listeria case and botulism cases, but 
the, the bulk of what we were doing was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. After about 10 years of litigation, had taken a bunch of money from the beef industry, probably you know, $400 million, um, and reg new regulations coming into effect and the industry stopped fighting about it and started focusing on it. We started seeing the E. coli cases linked to hamburgers absolutely just drop. I mean, and I remember the summer of 2003 and there wasn't a E. coli outbreak linked to hamburger. And I was like, hmm, maybe we were too good at what we did. No, that's great though for America. It is, no, no, no. And unfortunately for all the people who've gotten sick from cantaloupe and spinach and the leafy greens, we're still incredibly busy and we're trying to now sort of squeeze those guys down. But, you know, I, I tell you that story because I actually tell that story to the industry all the time. And, you know, you can fix these problems. And uh, so with respect to, you know, these outbreaks, the vast majority of them are caused by mass production of food. It's the, it's the bag triple washed product. It's the you know, the, the big packing shed that's doing, you know, listeria tainted cantaloupe. Um, you know, most of these outbreaks are caused by mass production. Um, you know, if you, I, I could pop up a, a, some photos from the uh, romaine lettuce 2018 litigation um, from Yuma, at Arizona, 240 people sick and five dead and a bunch of kids with uh, acute kidney failure. Um, it was essentially linked to the water that flowed past a hundred thousand cow CAFO that's Jeez. essentially across the street from where they grow romaine lettuce. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take a smart person, let alone a dumb lawyer to kind of go, Hey, that's doesn't seem like a really good idea. And so, so if that water gets into their roots, could it make people sick or does it have to get on top of like sprayed on it or something? So it, it can go in through the roots. Um, there's literature on that topic, but you know, we, we, in this litigation, there was a cluster of cases that were, that appeared on paper anyway, to be linked to farms that were about 50 miles away from this CAFO. And the defense was, it couldn't be us because we're 50 miles away from the CAFO. And, you know, to be honest with you, that kind of makes sense. Like, how could it? So, but as we dug and dug and dug into the litigation, we found a really interesting fact that not only that farm, but other farms that were also by paper linked to this outbreak um, were also a long distance away from the farm. Uh, but the common denominator was the same, they use the same aerial spraying company. Oh, and then we went after them, we, we subpoenaed their documents, found out, guess where they were getting their water to put <laughs> in their planes to, to, to spray from the canal. And you're like, <laughs> so what, what leads it to be that one outbreak that year and not there be an outbreak every single year previously? You know, it's, it's a combination. It, usually it's a, kind of a combination of like perfect storm, like okay. you know, a big rainstorm or, uh, you know, a, a period of heat, uh, something that might damage the, the roots, the, damage the leaves enough that, you know, the E. coli can get a little toehold in there. And ah. uh, there's, there's usually kind of a combination of things. Um, you know, Yuma, Arizona thought they were immune from, these outbreaks because um, they'd never happened before. And most of them happened in uh, the Salinas Valley in California. Um, and they thought, well, it wouldn't happen here because it's really hot and dry. And until they happen. Yeah. And then you, then you look at it and go, well, you know, it clearly would not have happened had you not had a uh, hundred thousand cows, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it, sometimes it's just, it's amazing um, uh, how commonsensical. There was a, an article put out by the FDA recently of a follow-up investigation to an outbreak that occurred in 2019. Um, and uh, 
and, and their, their conclusion was, uh, hey, you know, we think it's related to cows because there's cows nearby. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I, and I, I did a blog about it. And, you know, that uh, character on TV, Captain Obvious? Yeah. <laughs> so I put a little picture. I said, uh, you know, no blank Captain Obvious. <laughs> cows cause E. coli <laughs> And of course, some of my friends at the FDA, you know, I'm probably not going to get a Christmas card from them anymore. But um, yeah, so talk you know. a little bit about that. I mean, there's lots of lawyers who go do what they do and they make money doing what they do. And they're really happy going and sitting on their money throne. And then there's guys like you who do great work for your clients, but you're also an advocate in the industry. Um, you speak, you know, to governments and trade associations, sort of what kind of capacity do you work in the advocacy side outside of being a lawyer? So we do quite a bit. I mean, I've testified in front of Congress. Um, you know, we were really involved in the um, uh, passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act uh, in 2010. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, I should I, I I should find. I think I may have a T-shirt or shoot or two around still. But um, we pa I passed out uh, T-shirts when you could do that kind of thing uh, on the Senate side to all 100 senators, and there was. It was a it was a T-shirt that said it had a picture of me on the lapel with a red X through it, like uh, you know, get you know, uh, like uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah. And on the back it said, you know, put a trial lawyer out of business, pass meaningful food safety legislation by Christmas. That's awesome. And I passed those out to every single senator. You know, I, I spent almost three weeks in D.C. getting you know being able to go you know meet so and so. Yeah. I met I met like every crazy senator you can imagine. Can Some imagine. of them were like, what, what? You're a trial lawyer? What do you, ah, what? So yeah, we've been doing, we've been doing that. And right now, I, I, you may know the new thing we're doing is we're, we've made a petition uh, to, to uh, the USDA to ban salmonella from chicken. Uh, and you, you'd think that that would be sort of commonsensical, but it's completely okay for the poultry industry to knowingly sell contaminated chicken to the public. Huh. And um, back in 1994, uh, the USDA banned the sale of E. coli contaminated beef. That took about 10 years to work its way oh. through the system. And so what we're advocating now is there are about 30 strains of salmonella that cause human illness. And we're asking the USDA to do exactly what they did to hamburger. And, um, you know, right now we've got the petition. The industry is not very happy. Um, Who are you teaming up with on the like NGO or advocacy side to help push that, that those types of legislation? So there's surprisingly few uh, NGOs. I mean, there are a handful of them. And, um, and we've been, we've gotten Food and Water Watch, uh, Center for Science and the Public Interest, uh, the Pew Trust, there's a handful of people who've, uh, you know, Consumer Reports signed on to our petition. So, you know, we got a, a great group of, you know, people who've, or who are helping. Um, and then the, the three main petitioners are three of my clients. Oh, yeah. Who, got sick and so we tell their stories in the petition does ralph nader's group have anything to do with it no no but uh <laughs> uh yeah um you know they're, they're kind of focused on some other things but you know we, we've tried to get a lot most of the groups involved uh, you know some have a slightly different take um and some of them are understandably kind of wondering why in the hell is this lawyer from seattle doing yeah. this are there any legislators you found are really particularly interested in the food safety issues? Yeah, there are, there are some, um, you know, uh, Senator Gillibrand from New York, okay. uh, uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, uh, Dick Durbin. Um, in fact, I have a funny story about uh, Dick Durbin. Um, this would have been, it was, it would have been in 07. So there the House had flipped back to Democratic control in 2006 uh, for a while. And the food safety legislation that had sort of been boxed up for a decade when our friend Newt Gingrich was running the House um, was starting to move forward. And 
Um, I was in DC meeting with uh, Senator Durbin uh, because he was, you know, the Senate was crafting their own version of a bill and I was working with the Laura's office and trying to make sure the Senate's bill was going to be similar. So, cause they kind of like sometimes do their own thing and then yeah. when it comes to the end, it's so different that they, they can't do it in committee and it doesn't work. So I had met with him and his staff and I walked, I was walking down the hallway in the, uh, in the, in the uh, Russell Senate office building, walking down towards the um, elevator. And these, if you've been in those buildings are just huge, long, yeah. these Senate offices are enormous. Anyway, I'm walking along and then I went the door on my, my left. Uh, I, I noticed it was the other Senator from uh, Illinois at the time, Barack Obama. And so I'm walking out and just as I walk by the door, Barack Obama walks out the door. And so we're walking down the hallway kind of together towards the, the door, not saying anything. And I push the elevator and I get on and, and he looks at me and he goes, goes, uh, so what were you doing in Durbin's office? And I was like, well, you know, I'm a lawyer, you know, doing this food safety stuff. And he goes, he goes, he goes I know you, you're the E. coli guy. <laughs> <laughs> How awesome. That was cool. So that's my, that's my claim to fame. Any interaction that's with him as president? I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I gave a bunch of money to him and, wow. uh, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, I did, uh, make the shortlist for undersecretary of agriculture for food safety, but the beef industry just went batshit and, uh, <laughs> you know, there's just no way that, uh, it was, it was fun to be vetted by the FBI, but, yeah. uh, yeah. So at least, you know, at least I, you know, at least I got vetted and I guess they didn't find anything. Bill, you and I are currently working on the Pasha cases, which that thing has to probably be the biggest outbreak in San Antonio and maybe ever there was 800 people sickened. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it, that is a, yeah. And it's one of those cases that, um, you know, we've done everything we can do to move the thing along. And it's really an issue of, uh, you know, a underinsured uh, company yeah. and, you know, we're making all the, you know, all the arguments and, you know, uh, uh, that we can make, you and I can make to, you know, get the insurance company to step up. And I'm guardedly optimistic that, um, that uh, the insurance company is going to see, see the position that we are taking, that there's more coverage than they originally suggested in the Magna Carta. Yeah. And so <laughs> that, that, that my office drafted, you know, yeah. about a year and a half ago, but, um, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, that the insurance company will see it our way or close to it. So all of the people that we represent, uh, and frankly, all the people who have claims will get, uh, compensated as close to fair as we can do. Yeah. But Bill, we have young listeners who listen to this, young lawyers and other lawyers. And I think a lot of people, when they get a call on a food poisoning case, go, yeah, I'm not doing that. I mean, I think, I think just so many of those get called to lawyers and lawyers just ignore them. What is your advice for, for lawyers who get these calls in terms of how to properly vet them and then decide what to do, which, you know, send them to you, but well, how, how do they hold on to them? San Antonio, send them to you. Well, they're also that. Yeah. Sure. But you know, I mean, um, you know, we work collab. I mean, you, you can, you know, you know, justify this. I mean, Justin, we work really super collaboratively with, you know, our local council and, and, uh, you know, you know, I, I never like, I never focus on fees and who's doing what, um, you know, I love my job. I mean, I, I'm lucky that way. And, and I'm, I found a niche that I really enjoy and, and, you know, I'm really damn good at, and our office is really good at yeah. it. Um, and uh, so, you know, there are a lot of times where very good lawyers <clears throat> take these cases and, um, you know, try their hand at them and they'll call and ask for an expert and I'll give it to them and they'll, you know, they'll muddle along and then somewhere along, you know, they'll call me back and go, uh, now what? Yeah. And so, um, but I'm also super, if somebody wants to refer a case and, you know, keep their fingers in the pot to figure out how to do this, 
you know, that's fine with me. There's, there's, you know, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to do every case, um, you know, and, um, um, you know, I think it makes sense to collaborate, but, you know, I also urge people if they don't know what they're doing, pick up the phone or shoot me an email or, you know, and, and I'm happy to help. I always say I'm never too proud to learn. And every time I've worked with you on a case, I've learned a lot. I mean, these things have their own language. They have their own sort of, you know, background information you got to get to even know if it's worth moving forward on. And, you know, y'all have been so gracious and so humble and, and so informative for my office to move you know, and learn these. Yeah, we, you know, we've developed relationships with, you know, I mean, most of the time, most of the time on these, especially these nationwide cases, um, we know who the lawyer is going to be for the case. We already know the adjuster. They know that, you know, we're serious and, you know, uh, serious, but reasonable. Um, I was actually talking to a, I've got a E. coli case up in Chicago where I represent like 48 people. The case has limped along for like a year and a half in litigation. And, you know, and now with COVID, it's going to limp along for another, who knows how long until we're going to get a trial. But I was talking to the defense lawyer the other day and they're like, well, you know, you know, and there's probably another 20 cases, one lawyer here, one lawyer there. And I've been trying to get the plaintiffs all together and try to work out a demand. And they're like, you know, these cases are, you know, you guys want too much money. And I'm like, well, you know, you got to make offers, <laughs> make people nervous. Yeah. You know, I said, the one thing about strict liability is once I have you, once I figure out causation and you're stuck, then the issue is how much is it worth? And reasonable minds should be able to come to a conclusion of what a reasonable value of a case is. And I said, I tried a lot of cases in the first five, six years of my practice. I haven't tried very many cases in the last 25 years of my practice. And it's not because I'm, you know, adverse to trying cases. It's just that once I prove strict liability, the issue is damages. And so to you, defense lawyer, thinking I'm being unreasonable, think about the fact that in the last 25 years, almost all my cases settled. So <laughs> somebody's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and the defense was reasonable. So what's the difference about our case right now? It hasn't settled. Is it because I'm being unreasonable or you're being unreasonable? So she was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And I've dealt with some Chicago defense lawyers before. They were, um, you know, they like to butt heads. Yeah. 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 And, and the system, you know, Cook County may be good at the end of the day for trial. Five years but, later. Oh, my God. It's like, it's like, you know, they have these cattle calls and, you know, I moved for summary judgment in that case. The defense didn't respond and the court didn't grant my motion. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> it was like, well, you know, there could be facts. I'm like, but there aren't any. <laughs> so anyway, it's just, it's just different. So it's different. Well, Bill, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a law nerd about, lawyers and and really you're you're a hero i think to a lot of us out there who know what you've done and you've blazed a path and you've done it yourself and you're a voice for the victims and you're a voice for all of us as well so thank you how much how could people learn more about your firm marlar clark but you also run a fantastic blog how could they get to that blog so marlarblog.com it's as it sounds marlarblog.com um <clears throat> we also have a lot of resource websites um if you go to marlarclark.com and you look at the very bottom, there's a, a, a bunch of different links to different websites that we've developed over the last 25 years. And, you know, uh, they're about the bacterias or viruses that we deal with or, um, and also some of the, the main complications yeah. and a great resource. If you, you know, uh, if you, you know, you're kind of trying to dip your toe in the water of, uh, you know, these kinds of cases. And, and it's good for, you know, consumers. To, in fact, you know, we're old enough, I'm old enough now, you know, when, when the internet started uh, and people were doing websites, 
he sort of thought of them as like a big brochure. Yeah. You know, when I first started practicing law, you'd have a brochure about your firm, like in the lobby. Um, because who goes to your lobby anymore, you know? And so, um, so essentially that was our thinking, you know, you created a website, here's our, and then we did the same thing for these bacteria and these illnesses that relate to that. And we, we have developed them along with experts over the last 25 years. They're, they're pretty comprehensive. And so those are good resources for people. And, you know, email is a great way to find me, but, you know, I'm, as you know, uh, Justin, I'm kind of on 24 seven. Yeah. Very yeah. quick to respond. Yeah. So what's your email? B Marler at MarlerClark.com. Okay. Well, Bill, I went way longer than I planned to, but I was going to hope to keep you for a long time. Will you sit tight and let me play my dramatic music and then we'll, oh, we'll I, chat on I here again? Wait, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> 